Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. With uh, the first of the year, it's pretty common anymore and trendy among churches to take a, a Sunday to talk about uh, dreams, hopes, visions, plans, and, and all, of the, all of the things you want to get accomplished, and then to discuss ideas about, well, you know, these are your hopes, these are your visions, make sure you got them clearly laid out, make your resolutions, and then here's kind of how God fits into helping make sure all your dreams come true kind of thing. There's different ways that some churches call this, and I, I, I say all this to let you know that you won't miss the, the, um, the statement that we're making by what we're talking about this morning. There, there's lots of ways that trendy churches go in our culture today about vision and such like that I've said, of how, and how Jesus can help you achieve all of your dreams. So knowing that this is trendy among churches to talk about your vision for 2017 from the pulpit on the first Sunday of the year, we are going to turn to Luke chapter 2 and continue our study of the Word of God. And I, I say that because I, I want that to, to, to mean something to us. That when we gather as the church, we gather under the teaching of the Word of God. We are a people of the book. There is a book that we have that has the authority. We believe this is God's special revelation to us. And so it doesn't matter what we talk about. If it's not coming from this book, we're, we're really kind of uh, wasting our time when we gather as a church. We are to be sitting underneath the authority of this book. And so we're going to be anti-trendy this morning, and we're going to strive to be biblical and discussing and looking at what God has said to us specifically through the apostle or through Luke through his gospel writing. So this is Luke chapter chapter 2 verses 22 through 40. We'll read the text and then we will uh, get into it. Luke 2:22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed For the fall and rising of many in Israel, 
And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from that temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. The text today is working hard at showing us really one thing, and it's the reality of who Jesus Christ is. This text is working hard, and Luke has been working hard for this first chapter and a half at just trying to placard the reality, look, see who this Savior is, who this child is, who this child named Jesus really is. Often when we read our Bible, when you hear some preachers, when they preach through their Bible, they, they work hard to take a text and, and ram it through the, the colander or the, the strainer of pragmatism. And so you take a gospel narrative and you push on it and you work on it and you try to figure out some way that you can take a little nugget of wisdom home about how I can be a better person or how I can be more like Simeon or how I can be more like Anna or you know what, what things I should avoid doing, how to not you know, not see Jesus the way that he is. You come across these ideas of, of trying hard to make this text um, pragmatic or practical or what practical applications can I take away. But when we gather and when I'm putting out the scriptures in front of us, what I want us to work hard at is not trying to gather little life principles and little nuggets of information to help us live our lives better What I want us to look for is what is the writer trying to say to us? What is the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chiefly, mainly trying to communicate to us? And so when you read the Gospels, sometimes people look through it for little, you know, how does Jesus tell me to live? Or see how this person reacted to Jesus, don't do that. And and all these kind of just little ideas. But when you read the Gospel, the, the writer has an intention. And right here, we have all of these stories building up to, to say one thing, and it is the reality of see, see who Jesus is. See and stand amazed at who this child is. The fact that this child is something different than has ever been before, and it's not just different in like, um, you know, everyone has different childhoods, you know, your childhood looked different than my childhood. You had different circumstances, born in different places, you know, had different families you were raised up in, different traditions. Every, every child's life is different, right? So Luke isn't just saying, well, his life, this life is different, but it's not just different in equally valuable ways. It's different in superior ways. Something amazing is going on with this child. When we look at Jesus, when we look at the manger, yes, it is a natural birth, But there's things surrounding this that force us to say, this one who was born, this Jesus Christ, is somebody different than we've seen before. 
He is someone special. And Luke is pushing hard on that great truth. The central figure of our faith, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, come in the flesh. He is something unique. And he's pressed on this all the way along, right? We can think about through the first chapter with all the appearances the, the two appearances of Gabriel. He comes to Zechariah in the temple and says, You're going, your wife who's advanced in years is going to conceive and she'll bear a son. An angel shows up to announce this and he's going to be the forerunner. He's going to be the forerunner, the, the one who comes and prepares the way for this really important person. And then Gabriel shows up to Mary and says, you're going to conceive and bear a child. And Mary says, how can this happen? I've not known a man. And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and you shall have a child and you shall name him Jesus. Gabriel, I mean, so we have uh, an older woman's birth with John the Baptist. We have the prophecy of the angel showing up to, to Mary that she's going to have a child from a virgin womb. That's pretty incredible. Luke is trying to point out this child is something different. We have the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth are visited, yes, first by an angel that gives them the detail and then details of what's going on. And then God, God almost rips back the curtains on the heavens and all of a sudden the heavenly hosts are singing, glory to God on the highest, peace upon whom He is pleased. That there's this, these lights flashing for us. The big idea... Coming to us from the Gospel of Luke in these first chapters is Jesus is something unique. Jesus is something special. Jesus is something different. When we work through the text, we see in chapter, in chapter 2, verses 22 through 40, first of all, the devotion of Mary and Joseph and they're coming to the temple to perform their religious duties. We, we have these, these Levitical codes, these laws they had to abide by. And a couple of the first ones is that Mary needs to offer purification because of childbirth. And this is prescribed in Leviticus chapter uh, 12 if you want to read about this. But there, was, there were rules for offering sacrifices at the temple to make yourself, you were unclean from the blood and the, and the, dirt, the, the extreme event that childbirth is. She was considered unclean and had to offer a sacrifice and so they bring these two turtle doves which is which is a a clue of the poverty that jesus was really raised in in his family if you were a wealthy family you brought a lamb and a turtle dove but there's a provision it says right in the book of leviticus if you can't afford a lamb and a turtle dove or a pigeon you can bring two turtle doves or two pigeons and this is what they bring to the temple to to um to provide for a sacrifice so that she can become clean again. Likely, Joseph is having to, off, uh, having to offer sacrifices as well because of his involvement with the birth. He too would have been unclean and unable to enter into the, the services there. So they're offering these sacrifices, but they also are bringing Jesus up to redeem him. He's the firstborn. So you can look in Exodus chapter 13 and in Numbers chapter 18 where this idea comes out and this rule comes out that the first child to come from a womb is to be given to the Lord. And you can go and redeem them by giving like a five shekel piece or something like that. And so they're showing up. Mary and Joseph are a very religious, devout couple. They're a devout couple who shows up to the temple to make their sacrifices. But as they enter this temple... Something 
unexpected happens. I mean, today, if this happened in today's, you'd be calling the cops. I mean, you know, like get someone, someone call the, 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 the temple police, someone call the mall cop over here. This crazy person's grabbed my baby. Uh, we got problems. But this is what happens. They, they show up and, and Simeon finds them. He has been looking for, he's had this uh, prophetic word from God straight from the mouth of God, evidently. We don't have the background story on that. But he's had this word from God, and he sees Jesus and picks him up. And then later on, Anna, we have these two testimonies. We have this prophet, prophet and this prophetess who have these testimonies about the uniqueness of this child. This is not your average baby. This is not your average human. And so to, to finish the rest of the text, we're going to be answering this sentence in four different ways. And the start of the sentence is, to see Jesus is to fill in the blank. To see Jesus is to fill in the blank. And so the first one we see is that to see Jesus is to see salvation. In Simeon's song here called the Nunc Dimittis, in Latin we had the Magnificat was, was Mary's song, the Benedictus was Zechariah's song. This is the Nunc Dimittis. I have no idea if I'm saying that right or not, but it's the Latin how this is, this is a famous song of Simeon. But what he sings is, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. What does Simeon grab a hold of? He grabs a hold of a baby. He grabs a hold of this child that has walked off of the streets of Jerusalem into the temple. They're likely in the court of the Gentiles or the court of women. They cannot come any further than that with Mary and the baby and their uncleanliness. So somewhere in these outer courts, Simeon sees a baby. And he says, Behold, you are now letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen this baby. No, he says, My eyes have seen your salvation. To see Jesus for who he is, is to see salvation. Simeon is under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing all the references to the Spirit we have here in, in Acts chapter two or in Luke chapter two. I said Acts because Luke also write the books, writes the book of Acts. And, and Don will tell you that that's improperly thought of sometimes as the Acts of the Apostles. And what he'll say is that it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Ah, see, I got it. I was right. He's, he's told me that before. And, and I, got, I got another thing I would call it as well. But I'll go. But, but Luke has this, this very stark um, emphasis on the Spirit's movement all the way back here in Luke. I mean, in the first of his two books, the Gospel of Luke, the Acts of the risen and resurrected Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through his church. But that's, you know, anyway, Luke and Acts. That the, the emphasis of this Holy Spirit moving. And, and, and Simeon has had this word come from God that he'll not depart until he sees God's salvation. And then here, this baby comes along and he breaks out into praise that finally God is going to let his servant, mean himself, depart in peace, likely meaning die. He's probably an old man and he's saying, I've been waiting for this day. I now can depart in peace once I have seen the salvation of the Lord, there's nothing more for me to see, is what he's saying. To see Jesus is to see God's salvation. To see Jesus is to see God's salvation. He's excited because first, God has specially revealed to him 
that he would not die until he sees the Lord's Christ. And so he's excited because this, this promise that's been given to him, God makes good on. We could have spent time on that theme of God all the way through these chapters making a promise and then fulfilling it. Making a promise, then fulfilling it. Making a promise, then fulfilling it. And here he is with Simeon. He's made a promise and he fulfills it. God always makes good on his promises. But here, he, he's excited for that reason, but the second reason is even greater than that. Because beyond this personal word that has been spoken to Simeon about seeing this Savior, he sees the salvation of Israel. He sees the Redeemer. He sees the one who's going to be the consolation of Israel, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for your glory to your people Israel. He has seen He's excited because this personal word has been fulfilled to him. But he's super abundantly excited and joyous because he has seen the Savior. This one that has been longed for since the creation of the nation of Israel back in Abraham and, and, and Jacob and Isaac and, 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 and Jacob. That since the creation of this people group, this salvation, this one they've been longing for is finally shown up. God's salvation is seen in this real living child. When you see Jesus, you see salvation. And this is what's so unique about Christianity. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not a teaching. It's not an idea. It's not primarily a way of life. What is it then? It's an announcement. It's a proclamation a declaration of what? Of the great fact of an event. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared. Something has happened. There has been an entry. A veil has been torn back. And something is visible that was not visible before. Here is an act, an event, something that has taken place. Christianity is not about a philosophy, a way of thinking or a teaching or a certain methodologies. Christianity is about a person who was born into the world, Jesus Christ. And to see this person, to see Jesus, is to see salvation. The second thing, the first thing is to see Jesus is to see salvation. The second thing is to see Jesus is to be brought to a decision. In verse 34, after he sings this song, he goes on and tells them, Simeon says to them, After verse 33, his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. To see Jesus is to be brought to a decision. His appointment will bring a rising to some and a falling away to others. Jesus is the great dividing line. To see Jesus is to be brought to decision. To see Jesus and his claims is to make a decision in regards to him. Here we have one child, born of a virgin, living a sinless life, who claims to be God himself. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says that he has come to seek and save the lost. He has come. He's the Savior. Jesus comes on the scene and says these radical statements. And because of that, to see Jesus, to really hear his message, to see what Luke is saying about him is to be brought to a decision. 
you cannot look at Jesus and remain neutral. Either his claims are true, and therefore we are obligated to place our faith in him and trust him, or else Jesus is a lunatic. Those are basically your decisions. Either these claims are right, either what Luke is saying is true, and we should bow down and worship this child who was born because he is who he says he is, and he is who Luke points us points us to see that he is, either we should worship or else we have to say, this guy's, uh, well, as C.S. Lewis says, that he's on the level of a poached egg. He's lost his mind. It, we cannot remain neutral. To see Jesus is to be brought to a decision. He's so polarizing, there is no middle ground with him. We know people like this in our culture today, and I, I hesitate to even bring the name, bring the guy up, but we have someone who's recently been elected to office, who is this polarizing type of a figure, right? And you can't hear what he says and not have an opinion about him. And I don't want to know your opinion. I'm not giving you mine. But you can't hear it. I mean, what he says is so polar. You have to be totally ignorant of what he says to, if, to not have an opinion on him. Because what he says is so polarizing that it instantly divides people into camps. Well, Jesus is far better than this person, but, but he's in the same way. He's a polarizing figure. What he says cannot, cannot have a middle ground. He claims to be God. He claims to be sent into the world to seek and to save the lost. Either this is true and we should repent and worship or else we have to say this man is a little off of his rocker. There's no middle ground. To see Jesus for who he is is to be brought to a decision. William Hendrickson in his commentary says, Jesus is history's watershed. It's dividing ridge. Our relation to him is decisive for woe or weal, for bane or blessing, for good or for ill. Jesus is this deciding line. The point is that not only does this child grow up into someone that when we see him, we're forced into a decision. It is a decision of enormous magnitude. He divides that into two groups of those who will be lifted up, Simeon says. He'll be... uh, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. To see Jesus is to be brought to a decision. He is the great dividing line. He, and it's, a, it's an important decision to make, not just because he's still polarizing, because it's a decision of enormous importance and of value. To see Jesus is to, to, see, Jesus is to see salvation. To see Jesus is to be brought to a decision. And to see Jesus is to be revealed. It says on down here that um, in verse 35, that a sword will pierce through your own soul also. We could go into a lot on there, but speaking of basically Mary's grief, it's going to come as a result of Jesus. So that, he says, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, and so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. To see Jesus is to be revealed. To see Jesus is to be revealed. First of all, many are simply opposed to the thought of needing a Savior from outside of themselves. And this is no more prevalent than in our culture right now. The idea that your salvation is dependent upon a force outside of yourself is not a mantra we have around here. It is basically believe in yourself. Help yourself up. You've got to be the change you want to see in the world. Things like that are the, are the statements we make. To see Jesus, though, is to be revealed. 
We are not a culture that sees our need from a Savior from outside of ourselves. But Simeon and Anna, their whole lives are consumed with looking for the Savior from outside of themselves. Someone is coming. I need a rescuer. I need, I need help from outside of myself. They are obsessed. They, are, they would stick out like sore thumbs in our culture today. They're so obsessed, they are so obsessed with looking inward, with navel gazing, looking deep inside of myself for some sort of answer, instead of out into the answer that Jesus Christ really is. Like the psalm writer in Psalm 121, he says, I lift my eyes up to the hills from where my help comes from. That the help is from outside of ourselves. And to see Jesus is to be revealed. Jesus reveals our hearts when we address whether we are humble enough to see ourselves clearly in our need for a Savior. He reveals your heart. Are you willing to admit, I need a force outside of myself to save me? And secondly, he reveals the pride of our hearts in the manner in which he saves. Many people would be, okay, so, okay, I'll give you, I need help from outside of myself, but the help I want from outside of myself better have all his stuff together. He better show up and get everything done. He better be regal. He better be fancy. He better have lots of pizzazz and jazz and the best light show and all this stuff going on for him. And then, okay, that guy, I can, I'll, I'll submit that maybe I need saved by that, by that great person. Jesus shows up and he's hung on a cross. Jesus shows up and he's humiliated. And so we're revealed in two ways. In the, in the, do we admit that our need for a Savior? And are we willing to humble ourselves that this kind of a Savior is the one that we need to die for our sins? To see Jesus is to see salvation. To see Jesus is to be brought to a decision. To see Jesus is to be revealed. And to see Jesus is to have great overflowing joy. Anna comes along. She's either 84 or else she's been a widow for 84 years. They don't know. So either she's 84 or she's like 105. So she's been around. And I I say this, never think that you're beyond your usefulness in the life of the church. Never think, this is contextualized for some of my audience, never think you're beyond your usefulness to the life of the church. And at 84 or 105, is there praying, fasting, laboring for this Messiah to show up. And and as exultant, what does she do when she sees the Savior? Coming up at that very hour, verse 38, coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You're never past your prime when it comes to offering ministry to the church. And Anna Uh, gives us just the clear example of this. No matter your age, if you are still around, God has many ways which he can use you in the revealing of himself for the sake and the benefit of the world. Anna is so excited to see the coming of the Savior that her joy cannot be contained. To see Jesus is to have great overflowing joy. The question is, How well do we see Jesus? How well do we see Jesus? To see him is to see salvation, to be brought to a decision, to be revealed. And if you see him and embrace him for who he is, seeing him is to have great and overflowing joy. This Savior is going to do exactly that. He's going to save. This great one is born to die for the sins of the world. Born to die for your sins. And yes, his sacrifice is big enough 
for even all of your sins and my sins. To see Him for who He is, repenting of our own sinfulness and our own wretchedness, and looking to Him as a satisfactory Savior is to see salvation and to know the fullness of joy that there is found only in Him. Luke is desperate. I'm desperate for myself, for all of us, to see Jesus, the uniqueness of this one who has come to save, come to save us, come to save you. May God help us see him. Father, we ask that you give us eyes to see the joy that there is in this Christ, the salvation that there is, the revealing of our own hearts, God, the, this, the dividing line, the importance of this dividing line for woe or for weal, for, for bane or for blessing, for good or for ill, the dividing line that this is, God, that we would seriously desire. God, give us eyes to see Jesus for who he is. That salvation would be ours. Forgiveness of sins would be ours. And our joy would abound. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.